Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 129 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am talking to Jessica Brody all about how to use the Save the Cat method and, like, Save the Cat writes a novel. I'm sure many of you have already read the book. I know I have, and I loved it. So essentially, we're talking about story structure. But first, to last week's question, which was, how comfortable are you writing about difference? So Genevieve said, for the most part, comfortable, but there are some things out there I wouldn't touch because I don't have any experience with it and therefore don't believe I'd represent it correctly and fairly. Dharma said, loved, loved, loved this episode. A lot of brilliant writing, uh, sorry, a lot of brilliant advice on writing diversity. I'd like to add the suggestion to remember that that our diverse identities shape who we are, but don't define who we are. I completely, completely agree. Dharma continues to say, and we're all more than one thing. I am a trans woman, but I am also an accountant, a living kidney donor, someone who has struggled with lifelong depression, a wife, a former biker, a rape survivor, etc. Write characters with complex experiences. Not only does it make them more interesting, but it's fodder for plot. And I completely agree. We definitely are more than uh, just, you know, the, the boxes that we tick to put it. Lovis said, loved loved this episode with Maisie. As for this week's question, I am definitely cautious about writing diversity because I want to do it right. Um, and I absolutely want to include diverse characters in my stories. It might be the thing that scares me the most because getting it wrong means I probably offend someone or worse, but not trying seems like doesn't seem like an acceptable option. So I will be taking all, all the advice I can get and reading resources and hiring sensitivity readers for sure. Okay, this week's question is a selfish question, um, but an important one nonetheless. I'm cooking up something uh, in the background, and so I wanted to know, what are your favourite tropes? Um, if you could learn to like master one particular trope, what would it be? And by trope, I mean things like enemies to lovers, rivals to lovers, fake dating, uh, the chosen one. Yeah, tell me, are there tropes that you love? Um, or yeah, and which ones would you like to write or learn to write well? Okay, book recommendation of the week this week is A Lesson in Vengeance by Victoria Lee. Um, I have not finished this book, I will confess, but I am probably about halfway through. I'm really, really enjoying it. Her prose is luscious and beautiful and it's about a dark academia story. There's sort of rich history of witches and it, it is sapphic, um, though the, there isn't, at the moment, there's not, not really that much romance in there. It's not really about romance. So yeah, highly, highly recommend uh, this book. Okay, well, today is the 11th of March as I record this and I had my birthday yesterday. And so I am running a birthday discount until the 18th of March. So just have a couple of days left uh, to participate and you can get 35% off everything because I was 35, but we're not gonna talk about that anymore. Um, you can get 35% off everything by using the code BIRTHDAY35. And uh, when I say everything, I mean my courses, my audiobook, and uh, my digital books if you buy direct. So I will leave links to both of those in the show notes. You can pre-order the anthology, the Rebel Diaries Anthology. Uh, I am 
almost through announcing everybody. I think we just have one author left uh, to announce. So there are going to be some like live launch parties in the Facebook group. You can order it everywhere at the moment except on Amazon. Um, but yes, you can pre-order and it will be in paperback. And um, yeah, so uh, go get it. The, the anthology is jam-packed full of stories like sapphic pirates, angry, grumpy, sarcastic witches, um, hilarious demons. Um, what else? We've got uh, aging ex-reality TV stars, um, superheroes, supervillains, I should say. Uh, so it is absolutely jam-packed full of of, um, cracking cracking stories and I can't wait for you guys to read it. In terms of personal update, well my birthday was quite interesting. Uh, my wife uh, secretly planned uh, for to fly my dad over from the Netherlands and he got here yesterday and I was a sobbing wreck essentially. Uh, there is a video and it's much like um, it sort of plays much like you, I don't know if you ever see those videos of like soldiers reuniting with their kids or their, their wives or whatever and everybody's crying and it was very much like that to be honest with you. So yeah, my wife get, gets mega, mega brownie points uh, for that little uh, uh, surprise organisation. Um, so what else? Yeah, so we are spending some time in London this weekend. Um, haven't got a huge amount done this week. Uh, the internet did get put in. Oh my God, has it only been, was it only a few days ago? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that is how, uh, uh, what should I say, tough <laughs> not having the internet was. Um, but yes, so... Um, yeah, we have now have got the internet and, um, I am, what am I doing? I next, so uh, over, I've got a few days, I think, of sort of organisational catch up and then I am going to be working on my next non-fiction book and a non-fiction course, uh, set for you guys essentially and then I think I will be working on the scent of death, uh, in and amongst, like once the course is done, I will then be working on the scent of death. Um... Yeah, I don't think I'm going to have a huge update this week because my dad is here <laughs> and uh, therefore I'm going to maximise the time spent with him. So, Rebel of the Week this week is River. River says, Like you, I pride myself in being a rule breaker and a rebel and thus have a fair amount of rebellious moments. The first one was, um, I wanted to send you... The first one I wanted to send you was when I finally figured out I was attracted to girls. I had dated boys before, but I always found myself feeling attracted to girls, even so young as having a crush on my first grade teacher. Yep, gay as fuck, just didn't accept it. I had grown up very religious and therefore the idea of my mum finding out that I could be a lesbian was very scary indeed. But I also, I was also in this place in my life where I was trying to discover who I was and I couldn't ignore my feelings anymore. 13 year, years old, crushing on a girl in my cooking class who would sit on my lap during breaks. <laughs> oh, I can see how that would have been tricky. <laughs> Eventually I realised that I had a major crush and would avoid avoid her because I didn't think I should feel the same or, or, or that she would accept me. I also continued to push my feelings away in the fear of being rejected by my friends as well as my family. My family was the only American family where we lived in Holland, the Netherlands, and Halloween has always been a huge thing for my family. We would invite our friends to our annual uh, Halloween costume party and end up with a house full of random people in costumes. 
Um, because no one else celebrated the holiday in the Netherlands and my family knew how to throw a party. Every year it got bigger and bigger. Before the party started, my eldest sister had told my mum about a classmate of hers that was attending the party and made it very clear that she was a lesbian and that my sisters and I should avoid her. Spoiler alert, I did not. <laughs> no, you didn't. Uh, the idea of meeting someone that felt the way that I did was incredibly exciting and I made it my mission to meet her. She was stunning. 17 years old, tall, long blonde hair, beautiful smile, and she smelled like comfort, if comfort was a smell. I remember staying up all night talking to her. We ended up holding hands, and I even shared my first ever kiss with a girl that night. Oh, I love this story. I was smitten with her. We carried on a relationship chatting occasionally via email. She would also send me letters in the mail. I know, so old school, but this was the early 2000s. Back and forth, we sent letters and she finally asked me to be her girlfriend. Of course, I said yes, but my stomach was in knots about my family finding out. My girlfriend and I made plans to see each other again. She took me on a very cute date where she got me a hot chocolate and a sandwich and we talked about how much we liked each other and how amazing it was that we'd met. We spent the day together and finally kissed each other goodbye before we biked our separate ways. When I got home that night, my sister had heard from my girlfriend that we were dating and she ratted me out. Oh no. My mum was livid, absolutely shocked that I was gay. She refused... <gasps> She refused to accept it and beat me that night. I was forbidden to ever talk to my girlfriend again. I, as much as I wish I could say, spoiler alert, I did anyways, I didn't. And it still sucks to think about it even now because she was a beautiful person and deserved much more than me ghosting her. That relationship taught me so much. It taught me to keep my love life away from my family during that time and I was definitely into girls and that I would never again let someone dictate who I date or what my sexuality is. I now proudly identify as pansexual gender fluid creature who is married to a male who is very feminine. I don't think being married to a man takes away from my being part of the LGBTQ community just because people perceive us as, re as a regular cisgendered couple. We are both gay as fuck. That... I have goosebumps reading your story. So thank you, first of all, so much for sharing something that was so personal. I know all of these stories are personal. Um, but yeah, that, that story hit home for me. I, I am so glad that, um, you know, you, you decided not to let anybody dictate um, who you would date. And I'm so sorry that you experienced that. And just on that point about... Um, looking like a cisgendered couple I um biarasia is a a, a thing and obviously I, I guess that would stand for panarasia I don't know if that's a word but um essentially taking away uh, somebody's sexuality um because they have married what looks to be a regular cisgendered person I it, it, it is a it is a concept it happens to people um and it's not okay <laughs> you know who you sleep with or who you marry is not really anyone else's business and it doesn't necessarily uh, represent your whole self or your whole identity or, or your whole sexuality so thank you so so much for sending that in um, and if you would like to be a rebel of the week please do send in your stories we are always to be honest with you um, holding just a couple of stories so we are always always in need of them um, you can email your story to Becca on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com and it can be anything big, small or something in between. 
One new patron this week, welcome and a huge thank you to Verona Ray. And of course, a giant thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Just a quick reminder that this was also one of those episodes that I recorded whilst I had no internet. So it was recorded in my mum's house and, and therefore the audio quality isn't quite what it normally is. Uh, I apologize about that, but hopefully you will enjoy this episode because it really is a cracking one. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am mega excited because I am joined by Jessica Brady. Jessica is the author of more than 20 novels for teens, tweens, and adults, including The Geography of Lost Things, The Chaos of Standing Still, I Speak Boy, A Week of Mondays, 52 Reasons to Hate My Father, The Unremembered Trilogy, and The System Divine Trilogy, which is a sci-fi reimagining of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. <laughs> That's easy for me to say. Co-written with Joanne Rendell. She is also the author of Save the Cat Writes a Novel, the number one best-selling plotting guide for novelists, and several books based on popular Disney franchises like Descendants, at which I bloody love, we'll talk about that in a second, and Lego Disney Princess. Jessica's books have been translated and published in over 25 countries, and several have been optioned for film and television. She lives with her husband and three dogs near Portland, Oregon. I think that's Oregon. It's Oregon, right? Oh, well. My American geography is clearly not on point today. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello. Thank you. And fabulous pronunciation of Oregon. <laughs> oh, thanks. As a, as a true Brit, I, I always worry when I like pronounce things that are not, you know, I don't know, that I don't know. I'm like, oh, what am I getting wrong? Also, because my real name is ridiculous. And so that's why I have a pen name. And um, so I'm always, I always like to make sure I get it right. Um, but first of all, oh my God, The Descendants, which is amazing. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about that. Like, is it, how do you, how do you approach that? Is it different to writing a normal book? Like, how does that go? First of all, I think it's hilarious that that's where you went to first. Everyone's <laughs> like, talk about Save the Cat. And you're like, talk what about Disney Descendants. Just... Well, um, so here's the thing, right? My very first book was on villains. I absolutely adore them. They are my favorite nice. characters. Like like any film, any book, any TV show, it's all about the villains for me. So yeah, that is, that is where I was going to go every time. <laughs> awesome. Well, actually, was um, I was contacted by Disney Press, um, through my, I think it was through my agent who they were looking for an author to write this spinoff series called school of secrets, where they could kind of focus on some of the villains and some of the characters that are not as prominent in the movies. Um, and yeah, so I, they're like, are you interested? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, huge, huge Disney fan. Um, and it was super fun. I got to rewatch all these old Disney movies for quote research. Um, oh my God, amazing. <laughs> yeah, and take all these copious notes for quote research. And it was it was a really cool experience. I think my favorite moment was when we had to name a town in one of the books and it wasn't yet in the canon for Descendants. Um, there wasn't a town yet and we needed to name one. And so my editor was like, well, just come up with a name. And I did, and it's in there, and I know it's in the canon. And I was like, wow, that's so oh, cool. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> Super nerdy, yeah. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love those films. And like me and my son have watched them. I don't even know how many times because of course, like they're the ones about villains. So I'm going to like rewatch them on like repeat. 
try and force him. I mean, unfortunately, my son like wants to be a Gryffindor, even though he tested as a Slytherin, which is clearly a family house. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, that is so cool. Um, can can you before we like dive into the the meat of the episode, which will be about Save the Cat Rights a novel, of course? Uh, can you tell everyone a little bit about you? Like maybe go into a bit more detail. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I mean, my story sort of feels cliche in that I was trying to get published, was trying to get an agent, and I was getting rejected just all over town. Um, I, I literally have a file folder full of rejection letters that I like to pull out every now and then and just, you know, leaf through. Um, but I could not get my first book sold or, pub, or represented. And uh, I finally figured out why it was because it didn't have a story. It was just sort of a bunch of, you know, like really clever dialogue pieced together with a very loose thread. Um, and that's pretty much what all of the rejection letters said was that there is some great writing here, but there's no story. And that's when I was introduced to uh, Save the Cat, the original screenwriting guide by a screenwriting friend of mine, screenwriter friend, who told me it might help me with my storytelling woes. And uh, I read it and it just sort of changed everything for me. Um, I ended up rewriting the book I was trying to get represented um, using the Save the Cat method. And uh, I the, on the next rewrite, I got an agent and that book sold to St. Martin's Press in 10 days. And wow. then I have sold 20 novels to major publishers like Simon and Schuster and Random House since then, all using the same method. So it's sort of like, I kind of like, I'm like, I'm the testimonial, but um, you know, a lot of people use it and love it as well, but I just, it worked for me. And I, so I wanted to share it with the world, this, this system, this, this method. And uh, I wrote Save the Cat Writes a Novel uh, with the um, in partnership with the Save the Cat uh, team. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I have read both Save the Cat Writes a Novel and Save the Cat. I mean, I think a lot of writers have, but for some of perhaps the newer writers listening, can you explain like what even is Save the Cat? What does that mean? Why do writers need to include it in their novels? Yeah, it's so, it's so funny because we forget like I'm so entrenched in it that I forget that people don't know it. And especially when you go outside the writing world and you just throw that into conversation and people go save the what? Yes. Like <laughs> back up a few paces, sort of like when you throw the word NaNoWriMo into a conversation and everyone's like, Oh, what? Yeah. Um, did you just sneeze? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, save the cat is actually a sort of a 15 plot point story map, essentially. Um, I call it the secret storytelling code um, because essentially if you crack open any great story ever told, you can find the same 15 beats uh, or plot points at roughly the same moments in the story percentage wise. So at, at almost in almost every great story around the 10% marks, there's an inciting incident that we call the catalyst. At almost every 75% mark, there's a, there's a low point that we call the all is lost. Um, at every, almost every 20% mark, there's a moment where the hero tries something new or does something different. We call that the break into two. And so there is just this pattern that Blake Snyder, the original author of Save the Cat, found in movies. And he, he just watched a lot of movies. He was also a screenwriter, but he watched a lot of movies and he's like, huh, these all kind of do the same thing at the same time, obviously in very different ways because movies are all very different. Um, but it was the same structure underneath. And when I set out to write Save the Cat Writes a Novel, I read 50 to 100 novels from as early as like Dickens and Austen to as modern as, you know, Girl on the Train. 
and Harry Potter and Hunger Games. And I found the same 15 beats in there at almost the same moments um, in the story. And I thought, okay, well, this isn't just for movies. It's also for novels. So it's a storytelling pattern that exists over and over, like kind of like DNA. Um, And if you think about DNA, like the DNA is what codes us into humans or dogs or a fish. And this is the structural element that codes it into a story. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And there is like a specific moment as well in in a movie or a book that that the original Blake uh, Snyder's book refers to, which is a save the cat. Like, is it a moment? Does he call it a moment? I think he calls it a moment. Yeah, Yeah. it's not really a beat. But um, yeah, so the the book gets its name from this moment, as you mentioned. Blake basically said that in order for you to get the the reader or the, he says the audience, in order for you to get the audience behind your hero, your main character, your, your main character needs to do something likable or redeemable, or in some way, get the, get the audience to root for them, whether they're evil or good or, you know, messed up or whatever it is. Um, and so he said the quickest way to do that is to have your hero save a cat. And he doesn't mean that quite literally, although there are instances of literal savings of cats that happen in movies and books. But it just means that the, that the hero does something where the reader stops or the audience stops and goes, oh, they're not as bad as, the, as they seem or, or they have something to root for. Or they have something redeemable about them, um, like if they had you know, stopped to save a cat from a shelter or from a burning building or from a tree. Um, and unfortunately, some writers take it quite literally and try to insert a, a, <laughs> their hero saving a cat. It doesn't have to be literal. It's just it's a moment where your reader go your reader gets behind your hero. So another famous um, example is from the movie Aladdin, where, you know, the opening scene is you see Aladdin stealing a, a loaf of bread and running from the, the, the authorities. And you kind of think, oh, well, he's kind of a thief, a, a, a street rat, um, just like the song that's playing is saying. And then he stops at the end of the song and he gives his loaf of bread to a starving mother and child. And that is a save the cat moment. Oh, amazing. I love that. And like, oh, goosebumps every time, right? Because they are like, one, I love Disney. (laughs) But also, actually, I didn't say that, of course. No, I love Disney villains only. Um, Right. In your book, you, I, so I listened to, I have the audiobook and which I listened to, and I have the, the, the paperback as well. And I think it's 10. I can't remember exactly how many different types of story, but you have multiple different types of story in which like you, you walk through different, like all how the beats match each of those story types, like do dude with a problem and, and all of these. So I wondered, obviously we can't go through all of them, but perhaps could you go into a little bit of detail about one or two of the most popular or most common or uh, yeah, uh, story types? Yeah, absolutely. So beyond the 15 beats, which you can really find in any story that just sort of makes the story a story, um, you have these 10 story types or 10 story genres. And I like to say these are not your mother's genres, like it's not mystery and sci-fi and and romance. These are actually types of story in terms of the type of journey that the hero is on or the type of theme that you have within it. Um, so some popular ones are the Golden Fleece, which are road trips, heists, treasure cha- treasure hunts, anything where there's a prize at the end of some sort of road, even if the road is metaphorical. So you've got um, the three elements of a Golden Fleece. So you've got a team, 
uh, a prize and a road that they're on. And so some examples would be like The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck and Ready Player One by uh, Ernest Klein and Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. So those are all very different genres. One's YA fantasy, one's sci-fi, one's um, a classic. And yet they all sort of have these three elements and they all kind of talk about the, th- the the lessons that the team learns along their road to try to achieve this prize. Um, another common genre that actually appears a lot in young adult fiction is the rites of passage. And these are stories of, we, we typically refer to them as coming of age stories. So they typically um, have a life problem, something that is happening to the hero that's sort of usually just sort of another part of life, like growing up or dealing with divorce or separation or death. Um, It has a wrong way to attack the problem. So the hero doing something that is really not like an avoidance of the pain that they're experiencing or avoiding the grief that comes from this life problem. And then it usually includes an acceptance of the hard truth that the hero has been avoiding. So in this, you know, you'll find um, books like... Um, the, the book thief is in here. Um, the, uh, I'm trying to say like brains blinking. Uh, a lot of Sarah Destin novels fall into this one. Uh, life is, uh, not life. Um, the sky is everywhere by Jandy Nelson falls oh, into here. Um, book. and I, I break down the kite runner in save the cat writes a novel. That's a, a rite of passage. Um, and then let's see, superheroes also really common. So these are comic book superheroes, but also can be real life superheroes. So this is where Harry Potter falls the first book anyway. And these are stories where you have um, a hero who's some kind of power or special ability, whether that be real life or magical in, in nature, but they just sort of stand apart from the rest of us, which comes with some sort of curse for being special. Um, and then there's usually a nemesis, which is like a self-made version of the hero. So if you think of the classic Harry Potter, he's obviously the chosen one. He lives in a magical world and yet he's very different. He stands up apart from that magical world because he's chosen that comes with the curse of being the chosen one. Um, and then you've got Voldemort who is literally a self-made version of a hero because he has had to create, you know, this immortality through his horcruxes and all of that. So, um, yeah, those are, those are three of them, but there's 10 and they're really, really fun to try to, once you kind of figure them out, it's my favorite game is just playing what's the genre and trying to break down stories. Yeah, absolutely. And like, even as you're talking, I was like, I think trying to try to think of other examples as well that, that fit into them. So if you're a newer writer, or, or perhaps even if you're a seasoned writer, um, what happens if you're not sure which type of story your book falls into? Like, and let's say you, you are at the start. And so either you're planning or you're outlining or you're just skeleton drafting, and maybe like, you've narrowed it down to two. Is it a case of your book should only fit into one category or can there ever be crossover? Um, Yeah. Is it just a matter of choosing and forcing your book into one or are there examples where they cross over? You know, it's so funny because I get asked this question a lot. It's, you know, what are really the genres for apart from being like a cool party trick where I can go name a book and I'll tell you the genre and I'll break it down in three, three things. 
Um, that's not super useful. What is super useful about the genres is helping you focus your story and tell the best version of it that you can. So when you figure out what genre you want to write or what genre your book is, and I have to say my books have changed genres multiple times in revision process because I started out thinking it was one thing. And then once I sort of got to the core of what I was trying to say with this story, it turned out to be another genre altogether. Um, but those those moments when the genre sort of clicks into place, at least for me, are moments when I know it, like it comes, it comes with sort of a clarity of, I know what I'm trying to say with this story. And therefore I can now focus it around that message or around that, that theme that I'm trying to encapsulate. Um, and that just helps me, you know, kind of make sure that everything I'm doing is sort of in service of that theme versus when you don't know the genre, it, it can, or when you're, when your books tend to like be in like three different genres, most of the time, and I don't want to say all the time, because there are crossovers and I'll, talk about that in a second. But most of the time, those stories tend to feel unfocused. They tend to feel like they're all over the place because the writer hasn't really figured out what they're trying to say or what the what they're trying to get across with this story. Why are they writing this story? So what I find helpful with the genres, it really just helps focus me. So that being said, there are books that absolutely can be fall into different genres. It's really just about the way that you interpret it. And, you know, I make I make a joke that like, here I am, putting these books into these categories, the author probably didn't even know about these categories. And if I asked them and I broke it down, they, they might say, no, that's not what I was trying to do at all. So <laughs> it's really not about whether you get it right for anyone else's book. It's really about whether you get it right for yourself and helping you like give yourself the tools to tell the best story you can. So when you start to feel like your book is falling into two different genres or multiple genres, you know, the trick is to, um, the trick is to like read those genres, study those genres, read other books in those genres and figure out what's the message I'm trying to get to the forefront. Like, what am I trying to say the most? Is it, you know, I'm trying to tell a story about someone who learns a, learns an important lesson along a journey that has nothing to do with the prize they thought they were after, then you're probably writing a golden fleece. If you're trying to tell a story more about someone who has to come to terms with the fact that they're special in a world where everybody hates special, then you might be writing a superhero. So it's, it kind of just boils down to what you're trying to say. Mm, okay. Oh, you've got me really thinking, uh, because, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a, a bad about to start writing a new novel in a new genre that I've kind of skeletoned. And uh, I was, I was like, Oh, but I really like this one. Oh, but I really like this type of it. Like trying to, and I sort of have hesitated from starting. Cause I'm like, I really want to know definitely. And I know the theme, but like, yeah, anyway, so this has been very helpful. And I, I think I'm going to go back and reread the two sections in, uh, in, in the book to kind of think about what you said in that way. Well, and don't be afraid to change it mid, mid stride. I mean, as I said, like, I think multiple books of mine, there was one, there was one time I was writing, um, my co-author and I were writing between burning worlds was just the second book in the system divine trilogy. And we thought it was an institutionalized, which is sort of a, a story about, um, someone who rises above an institution or, or burns one down. And cause our first book in, th in the series was institutionalized. And we were like, it's another institutionalized for sure. And we got, we were so stuck on this story. We could not make it work. And then I was telling it, I was talking to someone else about the story and I'm like, yeah. And then they go on this journey to find this weapon. And I was, wait a minute, journey <laughs> to find a weapon, a prize that they, it's a golden fleece. And like, just 
it just clicked. And I called my co-author. I'm like, it's a golden fleece. And she was like, of course it is. And then we just, that just refocused everything. And then the story just like, just totally flew by from there. Like we, we just found the path. It was really cool. Yeah. And that's so funny because, um, I am uh, like every time I, so I kind of skeleton before I draft, uh, and, and I sort of half skeleton with post-its and then I skeleton like, like in Scrivener, um, but I always get stuck at the 60% mark. And I think that might be why it might be because I haven't quite settled on like which one I need to do. So yeah, I'm definitely, I'm going to literally, and I set tomorrow aside. So I'm kind of giddy with excitement now to be like, oh, I'm going to be able to do it. Awesome. <laughs> well, maybe afterwards you can tell me more about it. I can give you some. Okay. Lovely. I can, I can tell you my interpretation of what you say. Okay. Um, right. Two patrons have asked about dual puffs. Uh, so two, like two characters with two points of view. Lovis mm. says, I'd love to hear about using Save the Cat Beats for dual perspective stories, especially if they don't both start at the same place, i.e. can one character's inciting incident have happened before the start of the book? Should they all happen in the book? Should they happen at roughly the same time? Yeah, dual pops. Great question. And um, one of the very popular ones, which I, I am currently writing Save the Cat writes a young adult novel, which will be out so pumped for that book <laughs> later this year. Yeah. I'm excited about it too. And, um, and I'm going way deeper into some of these things that, um, unfortunately didn't get into the first book, but because I get asked so much like dual point of view, I'm definitely going further into it, but, and I've also discovered more about dual point of view since I wrote the book or multiple point of view anyway. Um, so there's two two parts of that question I want to talk about. The first is the inciting incident that happens before the story starts. So I call it a pre-catalyst. It doesn't really matter what you call it. Um, but there's a lot of stories where there's something that happened before. And now the character is in a world, um, uh, in, in the aftermath world of that, whether it's just their own personal world or the whole world. But, um, so that can happen in a multiple point of view story or a single point of view story. So I wanted to talk about that. One thing that you need to make sure in order for the story to have the right momentum, um, for the reader is to have another inciting incident. So it's absolutely fine for something to have happened before the book. It makes it really interesting. Like, well, what happened? And the reader has to kind of piece that together as you're telling the aftermath of this world. But in order for this, the hero to have kind of a, um, a reason to move forward and a point of momentum, there, there should be something else that propels them forward, which we would call a second, another catalyst, or it would probably be the catalyst because it's the one that the reader's experiencing. <clears throat> um, okay. So that, that's one part of the question. The second part is the multiple point of view. So I have read lots of novels that do deal with multiple point of view in successful ways that do it very differently. So you essentially, I like to think of multiple points of view as tracks. So you've got like, think, think of like train tracks. Some multiple points of view are that some characters are on the exact same track. They're a team. They experience a catalyst together, a midpoint together, and all is lost together. Um, and so all of these kind of external things that are happening in the plot are happening to both of them. And they are both having reactions to them at the same time. That would be sort of a single track, multiple point of view novel. So a great example would be like Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. It is literally about the team and the team is all experiencing things together. And yes, they sometimes split up, but for the most part, the beats are shared. 
Um, but then you have multiple track points of view where you've got two characters or multiple characters that are on different tracks. So they're experiencing different external events, perhaps different catalysts, perhaps different midpoints. And they're, they're probably having different reactions to them because they're different events. So you can have, and then on top of that, and I'm doing motions that you guys can't see, I'm doing hand motions. I'm actually mimicking the tracks, but because of that, you can have tracks that merge together at certain beats and then separate out again and then merge together again. So you can do sort of really cool things with multiple points of view where you have, you know, a catalyst is what separates the characters and puts them on different tracks, but then they come together at the midpoint or they separate again at the all is lost. Um, a book I just read that I'm actually uh, breaking down for save the cat, right? It's a young adult novel is called Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. And she does a fantastic job with these, these multiple tracks that some, there's three characters. Sometimes they're in, two of them are in the same track. Some of them are at time they're on all three different tracks. And then sometimes they're all three together. So it's really kind of cool. And then you can do what I call staggered tracks where one character is having a catalyst while the other characters way off into their act two. And you're just sort of staggering those, those beats differently. And that's what we did in our system divine trilogy. Uh, we have three points of view and our, our third character doesn't actually have a catalyst until, I don't know, page 150 after the other two characters are already well into act two. So it, there's lots of ways you can do it, but you have to make sure that you are tracking those beat sheets with those for each of those characters to make sure that they are all having the right beats. And so, so when you say the right beats, does that mean they both characters or all five characters have to hit all of the beats? It depends on how much like page time they get. Um, you know, there are there are instances where you might want to in, introduce a POV that doesn't really have a full beat sheet. Maybe they have a small arc, but they're really there for another purpose, like to give perspective on the world, to give, you know, history of the backstory for a character. Um, and those characters will typically not have the same amount of page time as a main character or a hero. So if the character is having, if you're treating the character like a hero where they are getting equal or almost equal page time to any other hero, then yes, they probably should have all of those beats because you are want to take them on a satisfying, you know, transformational arc, which is really what the beat sheet helps you do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and another patron says, this is Shane this time, what's your advice for approaching the planning of act two and the, you know, that whole saggy middle, like, yeah. What, what advice, like how can save the cat help? Um, are there any tips or tricks that you would give to writers? Yes, absolutely. So what Save the Cat breaks down is this really important beat called the midpoint. And the midpoint happens in the middle of act two, and it separates two very long beats. One is called the fun and games, which is goes from the break into two all the way to the midpoint. So the first half of act two. And then you have this other long beat called the bad guys close in, which comes, which goes from the midpoint to the all is lost. So the second half of act two. And those two beats, the fun and games and the bad guys close in, despite what they're called, they need to be in, they need to be going in separate directions. So when your hero breaks into act two, makes some sort of decision to do something new or try something different, they are on an either an upward path or a downward path. Things are generally working out for them in terms of their goals and how they're faring in this new world, or things are generally not working out for them. That's called a downward path. And they're kind of slowly moving in a downward direction or just a, away from their goal. 
um, towards the midpoint. The midpoint is this really magic moment where you swap those paths. So if you were on an upward path, fun and games, something happens big at the midpoint that's going to take them tumbling down into a downward path for the second half of the act or uh, vice versa. If you're on a downward path, fun and games, so things are getting progressively worse for your hero or they're not making strides toward their goals, um, then something needs to happen at the midpoint. Again, big stake raising to swap the direction and put them on now an upward path. And that's how you really focus that midpoint is to make sure that it is creating a swap. And, and what that often will do is it will often create a new goal because something about the old goal didn't work out or did work out, but there's still problems to solve. And so it, you will usually introduce either a new goal at the midpoint, maybe a modified goal, like this didn't work the way I thought it would. So I'm going to have to try something different, but that's, I think the key to the midpoint is, is playing off of those act two goals. What is your hero trying to achieve in act two and making sure that the midpoint is either some sort of false victory or false defeat when it comes to those goals. Awesome. Uh, Shane had a follow-up question and um, I know that you mostly talk about uh, like plotting, but he wanted to know what advice do you have for creating relatable characters? Relatable characters. Okay. So I do, yeah, I do talk about this in the book. Chapter one is all about creating what's called the story worthy hero. And basically I, I call it a, a character who's worthy of a story, which you could say is makes a character relatable because a, a reader's not going to stick around for a character who they can't relate to. Um, in, likewise, they're not going to stick around for a character that they don't feel is worthy of this entire story because for a reader to sit down and read a 300 page story, they need to feel like it's worth their time. So that starts with the hero. So when you create your heroes, you need to give them these like elements of story worthiness, which I break down as one, a problem or lots of problems <laughs> Two, a want or an external goal and three, a need or an internal goal, or it's sort of an internal journey that they're on. So the, the problem that they're facing should be something, should be something big that is affecting their entire life. Um, that makes them immediately relatable because we all have problems. We all have things we need to fix. So perfect heroes or heroes who are flawless are sort of the first turn off for readers. Then you want to give them a want or an external goal. And that should be something tangible that the reader can understand when the hero achieves it or loses it. Because as soon as you give your hero an external goal, the reader immediately is like latched on going, Oh, I wonder if they're going to get it. Or I hope they don't get it. Cause I'm not, I'm not really like this guy, but I'm really interested to see if, if, if he actually, you know, gets what he wants. Um, and then you need to give your hero an internal journey, which we call the need. What do they actually need to learn by the end of the story in order to improve their life or maybe not improve their life? If you're telling a reverse arc or a villain origin story, what is going to change about them? What kind of light lesson or internal track are they on? And that's what gives our stories purpose and, um, it makes them resonate with readers because we readers feel by the end that they went somewhere. It wasn't just a story that was flat or went in a circle. The, the hero went somewhere and therefore the reader went somewhere too. And it makes us feel like that was worth our time. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Oh, I think I'm going to be coming back to this episode and (laughs) writing loads of notes all over again. Um, Okay, so you are releasing a new Save the Cat novel uh, tailored specifically to young young adult, which I'm absolutely like ecstatic for because I write young adults. So selfishly, I'm like, oh, yeah, I cannot wait for this one. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about it? Like what what's new? What are we going to learn? Like, yeah, obviously you can't tell us everything, but a little a little something. Yeah, no, I would love to. Um, I'm having so much fun with it because what I'm getting to do is after this first one's been out for now, almost three, no, through more than three years. Um, you know, I've been doing podcasts, I've been doing webinars, I've been doing so many cool events where I get to actually interact with people who are reading the book and hear these questions like Sean had and your other patron had. And it's so enlightening to me because I'm like, okay, so that's not clear in the book. That's something that I either didn't make clear or just skipped over completely. Um, you know, to, in my own defense, we did have to cut some things because of page count, but I'm fighting against page count for the next one because I have so much to say. Um, but I'm able to include some of these things. Like I'm able to focus on things that I think I'm now learning are very important for people to understand in order to tell, a, a, you know, a successful story. But I'm also noticing things in stories that I didn't notice before. And I'm suddenly like, oh, look at that. There's another pattern. I didn't notice. I get to put those things in. So for me, it just feels like a little bit of a sequel, but I am also writing it in a way that I hope if you were just coming to the Save the Cat experience for the first time as a young adult writer, you will get everything you need to get. But at the same time, I'm hoping that uh, writers, readers of the, of the previous book will come to this one and find new gems and new helpful hints. Um, and of course, there's just going to be 10 new beat sheets. The, you know, the, the previous one had 10 beat sheets, breaking down the 10 different genres with all those 15 beats. And I get to do 10 new ones. I am doing way more multiple point of view beat sheets, which are m- massive brain puzzles for me to figure out as we talked about with the different tracks and the melding of tracks and the separating of tracks. So that's been really fun. I think there is three beat sheets with multiple points of view in this one. When they're in the first one, there was only one. Um, and of course I just get to talk about YA, which I've written for years and I love to read. So it's just really fun um, to explore, not only from my own kind of personal preference for, for reading, but also just because YA is so awesome right now. It's so complex. It's dealing with such amazing and important issues. And it's this really diverse landscape that I've been getting to explore through Save the Cat. And that's just been really rewarding as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I love young adult. I love the hope that is instilled in young adult, like no matter how dark and, you know, sad the story is, there's still hope in there. And like that, that's like like a true Slytherin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I, so I, I do love young adult, but also exactly what you're saying. Like there's so, there's so much, there's so many things like covering complex topics and stuff. And that's, so I'm moving into like sapphic young young adult. um, And I just think there is, loads of sapphic stuff coming out like as a sapphic woman myself but like none of it's really gritty enough none of it's necessarily mm-hmm. like representative enough so mm-hmm. um yeah that's why I'm moving into that because I'm like yes now is the time now is the time um okay so in your blurb for this new book you mention um shards of, sh- shard of glass and dark night mm-hmm. epiphany I wondered whether you might be able to just explain what these t- two terms mean 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So these are terms I do go into in the first book as well. Um, so the shard of glass is um, just going deeper into the idea of this story worthy hero and the things that they need. I mentioned that they need a problem. Um, well, the problem is usually created in their life because of something we call the shard of glass. And shard of glasses can be wounds from the character's past, tragedies from their past, maybe just the way they were raised, the neighborhood they were raised in, the family they were raised in, but they they turn the character into who they are. And so we call it a shard of glass because it's something that's buried deep within them metaphorically, or if you think of a shard of glass, they're physically buried underneath their skin. And these scars have grown up around the wound. Um, and that scar is the character's problem. It's their big life problem that they have to overcome. But in order to overcome that, they can't just put a Band-Aid on the shard of, on the scar because the shard of glass is still in there. They have to dig deep and confront the shard of glass. So they have to confront the, you know, the parent that, that left them when they were young. They have to, conf you know, escape the neighborhood that they think is keeping, held, you know, holding them captive. They have to face fears and confront demons and uh, face reality. And that is what literally, that is metaphorically the character digging in, removing the shard of glass. So removing the problem at its source and facing up to it. So it's, it's just a really cool way, I think, of looking at why are characters flawed and making sure that they are realistically flawed and that they are also more realistically fixing those problems. Um, and then the Dark Knight Epiphany is actually one that was not in Blake's original book, but it was something I started to notice over and over when I was doing my research is that there was usually this moment in the beat that's called the dark night of the soul, which follows the uh, all is lost. So it's when the characters at their lowest point, they're sort of, you know, in a dark moment, they're wallowing, they're mourning, they're reacting to something horrible that's happened. Um, and it's where hope feels lost the most. And there, I just kept noticing that there were these moments that were a light bulb would flicker on or a final puzzle piece would fall into place, or they would find the clue that unveils everything. Or it was just a moment of epiphany that would then lead to what we call the break into three, which is some sort of decision or plan that's made in order to resolve everything in act three. Um, but I just loved that there was kind of always this little turning point at the end of the dark night of the soul where the hero found something important. Um, and so I called it the dark night epiphany. And I think that is what is missing for me. I know, I know how to get to the end and the bit right before, but I'm not, I think I haven't settled on that, that one. And that's been very helpful. Okay. Very good. good. <laughs> <laughs> I still don't have the answer though. <laughs> anyway, Cassie, another patron says, uh, did you find it? Okay. So, um, I know that you, with the descendants, you wrote like a new story, but based on the screenplay. So um, I don't know, I don't know if you have experience with this specifically, but Cassie Neal says, um, is it easy to adapt from screenplay to novel? Um, for say for cat readers, is there a method or process that a writer needs to be conscious of when adapting one from the other or vice versa? Yeah, great question. Um, I have actually not adapted from a screenplay to a novel, but I have I have spoken to a lot of authors who are doing exactly that. And I would urge you to treat the screenplay like an outline. Um, the problem with adapting from a screenplay is screenplays are all external. Everything is happening on the outside, right? It's you can't go into the character's head. You can't um, really go internally. You, you can show backstory through flashbacks. Yes, but it's, it's, you're relying on the, on the artist, um, sorry, on the 
actors to portray the kind of things that in fiction we are allowed to um, show in other ways. So through emotions, through thoughts, through um, reactions, through inner monologue. Um, so when you treat the, when you treat the screenplay more like an outline, so these are the main external beats that I need to cover, then it allows you to really uh, go deeper into those emotional internal beats that you really need, need to have in a novel. And the other thing I've noticed just sort of pitfalls that I've noticed for screenwriters who are trying to adapt novels is in screenwriting, you can jump around a lot easier without really orienting your reader. So I, I've read, I've read a, a, a novel written by a screenwriter who took the screenwriter took the screenplay and turned it into a novel. And I was so disoriented because they were literally just taking the scenes from the screenplay and turning those into novel scenes without telling us where they were, without telling us how the characters got there or anything like that. So there's a lot of more transition work, I think that needs to be done. Uh, once again, because the, the reader can't see it there, you know, when you, when you write it into a screenplay, you trust that the, the audience is going to see that they're now in a dirty, dingy warehouse um, with a screenplay. You might just have to use one line with a, a novel. You might have to really evoke the darkness and the dinginess and the creepiness of this warehouse without, um, you know, in your, in your prose. So that would be sort of my two, my two pitfalls, making sure that you are going internal into the hero's thoughts, whether you're writing in first person or third person. Um, but also making sure that you are tracking those transitions and orienting your reader in every scene as you switch around. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was just trying to think if I had advice for the other way around, but I, 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 I don't necessarily in, in turn, except to say sort of the opposite is true <laughs> when you're writing for, when you're going from a novel to a screenplay, everything has to be shown. Nothing can be told. So that's just something you have to, a lot of, a lot of screenwriters will automatically take a novel and just rely on um, voiceover to get some of that narration across, which is, which is fine. But I, I always urge people to look for more creative ways to make things visual that you would that you would have relied on um, for internal, you would have relied on internal monologue to do in your, in your novel. Absolutely. So um, like one final question before I ask the ultimate podcast question, um, what mistakes, okay, so let's say a writer has read your book and they are planning to um, use one of the 10 types. What mistakes do you see writers making when they sort of you know, attack the, the save the novel method or, or they try and implement it. Yeah. What are the, what are some of the common mistakes you see people making? Um, are, you are you talking about in terms of the 15 beats or in terms of the different story types? <sighs> that is a good question. In my head, I meant both. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just any, any sort of mistakes. Yeah. Just seen. like using the methodology, I suppose. Mm, like, yeah. Right. Um, I guess I would, I would say, it really depends on when you're approaching the, when you're approaching it. And, and this is something important to note about Save the Cat. You mentioned that you like to, I can't remember how you said it. You skeleton. like to structure skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, so that's a great way to build a skeleton or an outline or even a synopsis is to use these Save the Cat beats. But it's not just for people who like to plot in advance. Um, for people who like to um, 
you know, right by the seat of their pants, the pantsers who don't want an outline, who just want to let the story unfold and discover it along the way. That's totally fine. Somewhere in the process, you're going to have to check this novel and revise it and make sure that it is structurally sound. And so that's usually going to happen in a later draft where you might pull out the Save the Cat book or any structure method. It doesn't have to be Save the Cat. Um, and and make sure that you are kind of hitting the right moments at the right time for the most reader engagement. Um, so it's, it can also be a revising tool. So I'm finding sometimes that when readers are or writers are taking the structure and applying it to something they already have, um, they are trying to shoehorn things in to the beats instead of doing the rewrite work. So there's like, sometimes there's a, a resistance to rewrite, which is totally natural. We all go through that. We're like, oh, but I really like that scene. So I'm gonna call it the catalyst. But really it's not really doing what the catalyst should do in the most effective way possible. And it's, it's a disservice to your whole story because you're holding on to some moment or you're trying to make that moment into the beat when really the beat needs to be something else. So that would be one kind of very, natural mistake. That I, can, I, I wouldn't call it a mistake. I would just call it something. It's human a nature. lesson, a learning lesson, darling, <laughs> which yeah. I can speak to personally. Um, yeah. I am, because I am some, I sort of have this weird hybrid, like I outline as much as I can outline, but I don't know everything until I start writing. And so I am one of yeah. these people, like in my last book, my last book was a, was long for me. It was 125K it ended up at, and I threw 30,000 words away. Like I just ripped shit out. Cause I was like, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Like as I like rewrote it a bazillion times, but like you do, I think that is a bit of a rite of passage for every author is to learn that like you have to you have to cut the words sometimes like, mm-hmm. yeah, but we gotta do it like it makes the story better but yeah it doesn't doesn't, doesn't make it any easier <laughs> no it no it's Painful. it's something we all experience the killing the darlings is hard for every every time you have to do it right but um, if that's your process and you can get to the end of the book quicker by just like writing the extra stuff like sometimes that's mm-hmm. your exploration or whatever then you know you have to yeah you gotta you know, she says to herself you gotta learn to let go darling um <laughs> no it's absolutely true and <laughs> I, I will say that for the other way around for the people who like to plot in advance you know you sound like a like you're sort of a hybrid um but the people who like to plot in advance they will take out you know like a structure method like save the cat and they will be really diligent about making sure they have all the beats in their outline and they will spend maybe even too much time getting the outline exactly the way they want it, which can be a form of procrastination. It really depends on you. But um, but then what happens is they are too rigid in the writing process where they're trying too hard the other way around to shoehorn ideas into the outline because they're like, but the outline's perfect. I can't mess with it. But really, I think the lesson for outliners, for plotters, which I am one, so I I have learned this lesson (laughs) over and over and over, is you have to let the story tell itself at some point. Like you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to, quote, rebeat Mm -hmm. um, when necessary in service of your story. Because just like it doesn't serve your story to try to cram what you already have into the beat sheet, it also doesn't try to... it doesn't service your story to try to cram the things you think should happen into the story. Yeah. Oh, I love that advice so much because I, I can almost procrastinate 
with a story because and it's every fucking time like I know I'm never gonna get a full outline like I just cannot like I will post it the shit out of my ideas and then like I'll start skeleton skeletoning and I have like I have 25k of outline but for me a story is like building a house or, or doing a puzzle right so I don't see it in linear order which lots of people are like what but I, I puzzle piece. And so I take scenes and whatever I can see visually the most, that is where I go. And like, it's, it's like building and building and, but, but like, yeah, it just, you have to, all of the things you said, I completely agree with. It's basically where I'm going with this story. Well, it's so funny you say the puzzle piece. Cause I, I talk about it in the same terms. I say that drafting is basically the equivalent, like first drafting, it's basically the equivalent of someone saying, here's a thousand puzzle pieces put together the puzzle. And you're like, okay, fine. What is it supposed to look like? Where's the box with the picture on it? Like, no, there's no picture. You have to figure it out. You're like, okay. So you start putting, turning over all the pieces and they're blank. And so the first draft is actually just you painting the picture, the pieces onto the puzzle pieces. And then, you know, sometimes those don't fit together. And sometimes you have like a zebra in the middle of the sky when it should just be sky. And so the revision process is then the process of now I've got all the puzzle pieces painted. I know the elements of the story. Now I have to make them fit together in a, in a great way. So I think it's funny that we both use the puzzle analogy, which is. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. And like, this is why I procrastinate because I'm like, oh, but I don't have that piece. I can't see that piece. I don't know where that piece goes. And so then I'm like, oh, well, I just won't start yet. I'll work on something I do know. And like, no, you're procrastinating because I know I'll get the piece, but like nine times out of 10, it's because something subconsciously is going, yeah, but we have a better idea or we can change this or, you know, and I get there in the end. I mean, you know, (laughs) but it's, uh, yeah, you just have to, I don't know, find the process that works for you, I suppose. Writing is so fun, isn't it? It's so frustrating and so fun. Be a writer, they said. It'll be fun. (laughs) Um, Okay, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So can you tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel? (laughs) I think this question's funny because I just wrapped up the end of a trilogy, which was about a rebellion. It's a retelling of the French Revolution and Les Mis mashed together. Um, so I was in very rebel spirits in that um, in that book. But me personally, um, I would say so. I wrote a trilogy called the Unremembered Trilogy way back when, and I was so excited about the ending that I had planned, and it was sort of a little bit untraditional. It wasn't quite what I think the readers were expecting. Um, but I wanted to write, you know, what's the, I think it's William Golding, Gold, Golding, Goldman, I forget his name. William Golding said, um, give them the ending they want, but not in the way they expect. And I was like, I'm going to do that to the max. And so I wrote this ending and I turned it into my editor and my editor didn't like the ending. She was like, no, 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 that's not, it can't end that way. I was like, no, but you don't, you don't get it. Like you, you don't get how clever I was. <laughs> how did I did this? Like in this really clever way where you're like, you're getting what you want, but it's not quite what you think. And it it has to end this way. Cause if it ended the way you wanted, it would be such a mess. And she like really fought me on it. And it was the first time we'd ever disagreed. I think we'd written, we think we'd worked on six books together and it was the first time we'd ever disagreed so much. And I said, this is the ending. I'm not changing it. Um, it was sort of like, I, I I'm sorry, I can't finish my three book trilogy 
in the way that doesn't feel in a way that doesn't feel um, authentic to me. And so we put it, you know, she's like, okay, it's your book, you know, it's fine. So we put it out. And now the response has been really interesting. I would say that half the people who write to me are like, I hate this ending. (laughs) And like, why did you do that? Um, And then the other half who write to me are like, that was so like, I love that you did that because, you know, and they, they sort of get what I was trying to do and whether they get it or not is fine. You know, I think what's so magical about writing is it's only half the process. The other half is done by the reader. So you put your book out there and you have no control over how they're going to react. You just do the best that you can do. You tell the story you want to tell, you make decisions you want to make, and then it's out of your hands. And it's just, you know, you can either sit there and like stomp your feet going, they don't get it, which I have had the inclination to do. Or you can just say, you know what, they're bringing their own experiences to this and they're interpreting it the way that they need to interpret it. And that's beautiful. Um, and that's sort of how I've come to make terms with that ending. Even when I get people who don't, you know, emails from people who don't like it. Oh, I love it. I think that is a, I I think that is an amazing rebellion to do. Yeah. To like give your characters the, 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 not, I don't want, I don't mean justice, like the, the, the ending that you have pictured. And yeah, I have just finished a series that has, (laughs) beating the shit out of me <laughs> and uh, I just yeah I think that's the thing I'm worrying about I've, I've given it sort of to my critique partner and been like oh but is the ending okay because I do some stuff that is pretty cruel and <sighs> might not go down very well <laughs> I don't care because I had to do it because that was the story and so fuck it I don't care <laughs> it's done now <laughs> it's with the editor yeah You're a rebel exactly, exactly. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out a bit more about you and your books and anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, great. Um, Well, thank you for having me. Uh, JessicaBrody.com is my author website. I also am the founder of WritingMastery.com, which is a um, online writing school um, where I have over 10 online writing courses that are all streaming and you get access to all of them for only $15 a month. Um, but I also do live webinars through there and we have a community that you get to be a part of. So it's um, it's a really great place for writers who want to kind of dive deeper into any of the things I teach or any of the things my guest instructors teach. Um, so you can check that out at writingmastery.com. We also have the official Save the Cat Writes novel online course in there as well. Mm, Thank you very much. Um, And of course, thank you to all of the show's listeners and a bigger thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Jessica Brody and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Join me next week when I will be talking to Maggie Smith and we have an insightful discussion about um, emotional layers. We look at relationships between women, uh, writing complex topics in fiction. It It is an insightful discussion and yeah, so I'm excited to share that one with you. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.